All right. You on? Good. This is so cool. Maybe you guys have seen it for a while. We get to come up, and come, up, come up cold and see it and go, whoa, this is awesome. God is so good. He's blessing what's happening here. I'm very, very excited to be part of it, even just for a little while. So let me take a second to introduce myself to those of you that don't know who I am, and then to give a little bit of an update on how I've been for those of you who do know who I am. So my name is Tyler Warner. I am Pastor Troy's son. I also was on staff here as one of the assistant pastors for several years. And in 2018, we moved down to plant a church in Trussville, Alabama, which is northeast Birmingham. And everybody asks me, how far from Birmingham is it? It is Birmingham. But Birmingham is so big, nobody ever says they're from Birmingham because that doesn't tell you anything. It takes an hour and a half to drive across the city. So Trussville, Alabama, northeast, and left in 2018. We've been there since then, and it's going very well. And for the first six months, we were able to just kind of float. We got a little support from the church here and just able to focus on the church. But after that, I have a picture here. It's the first picture. Um, I was driving a truck for six months. Do we have that picture? Let's get it up there because I can't explain it to you. I have to show it to you. Look at that. 1-800-GOT-JUNK. If you've watched Hoarders... And you're thinking, is this that company? Yes, this is that company. This was what the Lord provided for me to do for over a year to provide for us until the church was able to bring us on part-time, supported that way. And I have all kinds of stories, so if you want to know them, you can ask me afterwards or you can send me an email or something like that. Um, yeah, it was, it was an adventure that I will never, never forget. So... This is what we were doing, and if you go to this next slide, this is a picture of my family. Um, this, that's me in the front, obviously. My wife, Catlin, is in the back of that photo. She's also in the back here. My three kids are there. That's Micah, is the oldest. He's six. Colt is about to turn four in less than a week, so it's very exciting. And then baby Jocelyn, we call her Josie. And in that picture, um, I don't remember how the circumstances came about, but we are in one of those junk trucks on our way to church on Sunday morning. You also can tell from that picture, I appreciated the humor of that situation much more than my wife did. But we were on our way to church, and this next slide is a picture of the interior of our, our new space that we're in. We've been there for several months now. That is Calvary Chapel Trustville. Yeah. That's Calvary Chapel Trustville. That's also the building in which Calvary Chapel Trustville meets. You see what I did there? Because the people are the church. And it's... That was several months ago. We've done some improvements to the room since then, but very, very exciting, and they're going to be meeting here uh, just about a half hour, the hour behind us, so please keep us in your prayers. The Lord is blessing us. The church is planted. We are moving forward and looking for new things, and there's plenty to talk about, but for tonight, we're going to get into the Word of God together. So would you open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 2? We've been teaching through the book of Acts down in Alabama. And we've passed this long ago, but this is always a good one to come back to. To give you a little context, you know this already. In the first chapter of Acts, Jesus Christ, who has risen from the dead, ascends to heaven. He tells his disciples not to leave Jerusalem yet. They've got a mission to do, but he said, don't go anywhere yet until I can send you the power from on high, the promise of the Father. And in chapter 2, as the church prays, the Holy Spirit came upon them, tongues of fire, they were speaking in tongues. Peter stands up and preaches to the crowd, and 3,000 people got saved that first day. Maybe 3,000 families, it depends on the language. It was a lot of people. 
Now, I would like you to imagine what would that staff meeting have been like the day after that. Now, we've been meeting for 10 days. We've got a nice little church of 120. This is a good size. We're going to have an evangelism out, outreach. Let's see if we'll get a few people in. Well, now it's 3,000 people. You can't fit in that upper room anymore. So what are they going to do? Well, in chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, Luke, who is the author of Acts, gives one of his classic summaries. He'll go through big sections of the book, and then he'll summarize what happened for a few verses. Usually after a major event or a major shift, often when there is a victory of some kind in the church. So after bringing in 3,000 people, and it just kept growing, in a few more chapters it's going to grow to over 10,000 people. How do you handle that? Well, he tells us in these verses. You here at Calvary Chapel Lynchburg have experienced, or I guess you could say you are experiencing right now, one of those big shifts, one of those victories, right in the middle of a very tough time because of the coronavirus and everything else you could list. But the Lord has brought you into this new place it's going to open up new opportunities. You're going to see new faces coming in. The Lord is going to bless. This is awesome. You guys just wait and see. When everybody finally calms down and when the virus finally goes away, this place is going to be unrecognizable in a good way. You're going to have so many opportunities. But the question to ask yourself as a church, but also as an individual, or if you're a ministry leader, or if you're part of a team, part of that team, how are we going to go forward Maybe you've been thinking, do we have to do things differently now? And if we're going to do it differently, how different? What does different mean? Can we use the old methods and still get what we want to achieve that victory? Y'all, there are always temptations to do things the world way, isn't it? There's always temptations to do things carnally according to the flesh. There's always temptations to try to achieve spiritual goals through worldly methods, and this is a temptation that you all are facing right now, and I think you all are doing a great job of overcoming it. But still, we've got to look to what the Word of God tells us to do. When the book of Acts, when the church had an amazing victory, what did they do? This is going to tell us. And we want to look to their example because the early church, by the time you get to Acts chapter 17, when Paul shows up in Thessalonica, they're saying these people have turned the world upside down. They had no internet. They had no big buildings in most cases. They didn't have a lot of money. They didn't have seminaries. They didn't have Bible translations. They didn't even have a complete New Testament yet. And yet they turned the world upside down. And one of my old college professors used to say, if you want what they got, you got to do what they did. You can't say, we want all that, but we're going to do it totally differently. Look to what the Word tells us. All of this that we read in the book of Acts, and all of church history was born out of what we read right here. And this is not a different age or a different dispensation. You can say that, well, the book of Acts, that was a long time ago, a different time. P Peter said in Acts 2.39, when he was explaining how the Holy Spirit inaugurated a new era in the church, he said, this promise is for you and for your children, for as many as are far off, everyone the Lord our God will call. He's saying what the Lord began today is going to extend until Jesus comes back. That age was not unique to ours. And nor, may I say, is this age unique among world history. The church faced all the things we face now. They faced political upheaval. They were occupied by Rome. 
They faced racial tension between Jews and Gentiles and Hellenists and the Hebraists, and they faced differences of style. Paul and Barnabas had to go separate ways. There was heresy. There was persecution. The solutions that God has given us to all of these problems, they transcend time. They transcend location. They transcend culture. You even see this in the book of Acts. By the time Paul leaves Syria, all these places that really hated and resented Roman rule, he gets around to places like Athens that were proud to be Roman, totally culturally different, but it was the same thing. And in this passage, we're going to see what that is. The, well, we can break it down like this. There are going to be four tasks that the church does in this passage. It's a, it's a short passage, but there's a lot in here. There were four tasks that the church did. There were two expectations that we can have if we'll do those tasks, three attitudes that we have to have while we do them, and only one goal, amen? Only one goal. So four, two, three, and one. We're going to hit these a lot, and we're going to go fast and furious, don't worry. I'm not going to take a lot of time going through these. And as a church, you guys are being led very well. You've got leadership that loves you, that loves the Lord, is willing to stand on the word of God and has done so for years. But a church is also composed of individuals. Every one of you contributes to what happens here. We are a body. We're knit together. And if one part of the body is not doing what it's supposed to do, the rest of the body will suffer for it. So this is not just overarching the whole church coming together. This is for your life, making sure that you are living these things out too. So four, two, three, and one. Let's begin by reading verse 42, and this gives us our four tasks here, okay? Four tasks of a New Testament church. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. All right, so first thing. The first thing the church was devoted to was the apostles' teaching. This is task number one in the church, teaching The 12 apostles were teaching the rest of the church just as Jesus had taught them. The power of the Holy Spirit compelled them to teach. This was one of the last things Jesus had told them in Matthew 28. He said, go out, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Read through the Gospels. Jesus was a teacher, and everybody wanted him to be something else. It hasn't really changed, has it? Jesus was a teacher, and they wanted him to be everything that you could possibly name. There were times they even tried to drag him away to force him to be king. (laughs) You're going to be king, and you're going to like it, Jesus. And Jesus didn't put up with that. Yes, Jesus was a healer. Yes, Jesus was a miracle worker. He had a lot to say to different people and their different individual circumstances, but he was a teacher. And when things got too tough for him to teach, if people got, let's say, too obsessed with the healing or too obsessed with the demons being cast out, he would say, this isn't good because I can't get the message out. And you know, it's very easy, isn't it, to deride the church for preaching too much. Every couple generations, somebody shows up and they think that they're the first person to say it. Church just focuses too much on preaching and teaching and not enough on doing blank, 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 blank. Everybody's like, yeah, finally somebody's saying it. They've been saying it since Jesus was alive. But the word tells us that we need to have a strong emphasis on right knowledge so that we can have right belief. Now, here's the deal. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the apostles' doctrine, but the apostles are dead, okay? So how do we get the apostles' teaching today? 
You guys know the answer. This is an easy one. It's right there in your lap or you're scrolling through it on your phone. The good news for us is that the apostles wrote their teaching down. The Holy Spirit inspired them to do that. And we have it right here in front of us. So we as a church are to be committed to the systematic study of God's word. The old Calvary Chapel way, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, right? Now, why do we do it that way? There are other ways to do it, but why do we do it this way? Well, because the biblical illiteracy of these days is, is kind of alarming. Can I tell you a story? When I was in seminary in Bible college, I went to my Acts class. It was a class of 60 people, and they were various missionaries to be, preachers to be, worship leaders to be, who all had to take a book of Acts class. And my teacher asks these people before we begin, how many of you have read the book of Acts before? 11 out of 60 raised their hands. And then he said, now let me ask the question again. How many of you have read the book of Acts before, not in preparation for this class? Four people had their hands left up. That's a problem. (laughs) And the good news is they were going through a class, but why do we need to go to school to know what the Bible says? This is a problem, and we can have all kinds of great ideas of what we can do, but if the church doesn't know the word, we got to back it up a few steps. We do it like Nehemiah did, Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 8. When he was reintroducing the law to the people who had come back from exile, it says, they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. They read it, they read it clearly, and they just explained it so that the people could understand the reading. Topics are great, life lessons are great, but all those things are to be found here. And it's much better for us to learn to draw those lessons out ourselves than to rely on someone else to give them to us, which is why we focus on the teaching of the Word of God, the Apostles' Doctrine, learning what it says, how to study it, how to come to an interpretation. So that way, your individual situation, you can apply that to your own life. The Lord can draw it out for you in your own devotional time. And that way we're not dependent upon any man or any woman. We're only dependent on the Lord and His Word. And this is what they were doing. When a man knows the Word of God, it changes him, doesn't it? Because there's power in faith. The Lord tells us to believe, to have faith in what He said. And it's faith that saves us. And the devil is the father of lies because what you believe matters. If you believe that Jesus died on the cross and saved you from your sins... That's going to affect the way you live. You're going to be able to rest in the grace of God. But if you believe the lie that you've got to earn God's favor and earn your salvation, you're going to be a a nervous wreck. Or you're going to be so full of yourself because you think you've finally arrived. Both of those things can be corrected by knowing the teaching of the Word of God, the knowledge of the truth. Secondly, it says the church devoted themselves to fellowship. This is a Greek word, koinonia. You may have heard this one. It comes from the Greek word for common, which is koina. The common Greek in which the Bible was written is called koine Greek. So what does fellowship mean? It means people gather together around something they have in common. And in our case, that's Jesus. Because we have Jesus in common, all those other distinctions, they don't really matter too much, do they? 
The early church was full of Jews and Greeks, barbarians and Scythians, men and women, people from Africa, people from Gaul, people from Persia, all over the place. But because they had Jesus in common, all the rest of that could be dealt with. It was easy. So the church devoted themselves to fellowship, devoted themselves to cultivating relationships that had Jesus in common. Did you know that you become like the people you spend time with? Have you noticed that? Real or virtual, by the way? You ever talk to somebody and they're using all kinds of new slang words and slogans and you're like, that's not you. What show have you been watching? And then you see that show and you're like, oh, they're not funny. They're just good at quoting that show. When you hang out with people, you become like them. Married couples are very much alike the longer they're together. They even start to look alike after a while, don't they? I don't know what that is. I'm not a scientist, but I'm an observer of the human condition, and that is what I have observed. (laughs) So if you want to be more like Jesus, you need to spend more time with Jesus' people. You need to commit yourself to relationships that have Jesus in common. Because Proverbs 27, 17 says, Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. If you want to be sharp for the fight, you've got to have people around you. And the converse of that is true, too. If you isolate yourself, it's not going to work. When the gazelle leaves the pack, that's the one the lion goes after. And our adversary is a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And there have been Christians who have wandered away from the fellowship of the church, found themselves isolated, been taken out by Satan, and somehow still think they've come out the better end of that deal because the deception comes in. We have to stick together. Our highest loyalty is to the church, to the people of God. This has got to be your primary community. If you want your family, if you want your kids especially, to be committed to Jesus Christ, this has got to be their primary place where they get fellowship. If they're getting it and all this other stuff, then the church just becomes one among many, and they're going to pick the one that their 19-year-old self likes the most. We've got to prioritize this. We've got to cultivate our fellowship in our lives. And we can't think to ourselves, well, I can do church and I can do everything else too. Because 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Well, I'm a strong Christian. Okay, then it will take a long time for you to get corrupted. The Bible tells us bad company ruins, corrupts good morals. The church is to be the place where we cultivate Godly character, godly knowledge, godly habits. The church, people will acclimate to the temperature of the church. The church can either be like a refrigerator where people walk in the door and they're hot and they're on fire for Jesus and they're ready to roll and then they come in and everything just starts to cool them off. Everybody around them is, okay, come on, take it easy. Don't be too zealous. Don't be too crazy. You know what happens to people who go too fast like that? They burn right out. You better watch out. Or... The church can be like a sauna. <laughs> when we were in Russia one time, we did the Russian dry sauna over there, where you just, it's, it's like a regular sauna with, with none of the water to maybe kind of deceive you into thinking you're being cooled off. You got in there, it got hot, man. And they were like, let's go up to 100 degrees Celsius. I'm like, I don't know if that's safe or not, but let's try it. The church should be when somebody comes in, even if they're cold, even if they've been lethargic in their walk with Jesus, just by being around that fellowship, it just starts to heat up a little bit. Like, yeah, you know what? They're right. Jesus is awesome. Yeah, the Holy Spirit is still at work. Yeah, prayer can change things. So we've got to cultivate that in the church. How is the fellowship going to be? Is it a fridge 
Or is it a sauna? Are we cooling people off or are we heating people up when they come in? The church devoted themselves to fellowship. Thirdly, it says they were devoted to the breaking of bread. It's actually of the bread in Greek. This is a reference to communion. So we can more broadly apply this out. This is worship in the church. They devoted themselves to worship. The church is to be the place where we encounter God and to have one place where we gather with people where God is on top. Isn't that like the most refreshing thing about Wednesday night church? You're having to go through life, go through work, go through your neighborhood, whatever it is, and you show up at church and you don't have to feel embarrassed to mention God or to say praise the Lord, or to begin to pray deeply. You've got people around you that celebrate that. Worship. Jesus goes on top. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul said, Do not get drunk with wine, that's debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit. And here's how he explains being filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a lot of ways that the Bible describes being filled with the Spirit. But the way that Paul emphasizes here and in Colossians is the Lord puts a song in your heart. Singing, worshiping, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. And we want to say, well, worship isn't just singing. Yes, you're right. Everything should be an act of worship. However, music is closely tied to worship in the Bible. It's also closely tied to the presence of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, God told Moses and David to organize singers in the tabernacle and in the temple. This is how we worship the Lord. This is the specific dedicated time to worship Jesus. Worship is declaring who God is, praising Him for what He's done, jogging our memory. You ever hear a great worship song and you go, oh yeah, maybe you knew it, but you needed to be reminded in your soul. Yeah, that's right. That is true. God does do that. It builds your faith because you're proclaiming it out loud in the congregation. And it also engages your emotions. Is that a bad thing? Absolutely not. The Bible says, rejoice in the Lord. And when you come in and you hear a song that is joyful and giving glory to God, it begins to stir your heart. That's not a bad thing. God made you with emotions. So get your emotions in line to serve the Lord Jesus. It also can push you towards lament when you've sinned and can make you broken over something that maybe in a normal context you wouldn't even think about. It forces us to slow down. And it's cool because every revival in history has spawned new songs to the Lord. I don't know what it is about that. Every revival, part of the story is the church was just dead in its music. There's something about that, that Satan just wants to unplug the church's joy, the new song that the Bible tells us over and over to sing. Martin Luther started writing new hymns. Of course, Charles Wesley wrote those amazing hymns and the Jesus movement out in California, all those praise choruses that are still sung all over the world to this day. Worship is not just the previews and then the end credits, you know, a chance to show up late and still be on time or a chance to leave early. It's every bit a part of what's going on is the teaching, isn't it? Worship. Even in your own life, it doesn't have to be just at church. What are you listening to in the radio? What are you singing out loud? When you catch yourself singing, what, what's coming out of your mouth? Is it worship to the Lord? 
I encourage you to discipline yourself so that when a song is coming out, it's a song that's putting Jesus on the throne because he's worth it. And number four, finally, the church devoted themselves to prayer. Actually, it says to the prayers. It's plural there. So this could be a reference to the hours of prayer that the temple had. We will see Peter and John in a chapter are coming up for the daily hour of prayer. That's when they encountered the lame man. Prayer. Jesus identified the character of his house with prayer when he was on the earth. He cleansed the temple, beat the money changers out, got rid of the oxen, spilled the money everywhere, and he said, my house shall be called a house of what? Prayer. That's Matthew 21, 13. It is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. There are other things that go on in the church, but when Jesus was given the opportunity to correct the purpose of his house, he said, prayer. Prayer is error. For the Christian. There's so much pressure on the church, but also us as people to do, 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 isn't there? Get out there and do more. Why aren't we doing more? If you're like me, you're really driven and sitting still isn't good. <laughs> if I'm sitting still, there's something wrong. We've got to get up and we've got to move. The enemy loves to feed that fire because prayer is where the church gets strong, isn't it? The church was born in a prayer meeting. You ever think about that? Ten days of prayer after Jesus ascended to heaven, 10 days of prayer and Pentecost happened. Nobody was preaching, although preaching is great. Nobody was feeding the poor, although feeding the poor is great. Nobody was doing any of those things. They were praying because prayer connects us directly to God. It's immediate access to the throne room of the Father. And after everything Jesus told us about how we have access to the throne room of God in his name, we ought to pray. In fact, the only time Jesus really had doubt about his teaching was in the book of Luke when he's talking about how the Lord will give to those who are continually asking, the parable of the persistent widow. It says, if, if she was able to get what she wanted just by bugging this judge until he gave it to her, your father's a good father. But then Jesus kind of muses to himself and he says, but I wonder when I come, am I going to find faith on the earth? It's like he talks about prayer and it's so radical, he thinks to himself, I wonder if they're going to believe this one. It's just so crazy. They're, they're probably going to think, he couldn't possibly have meant that. But he did. Jesus faced the same pressure in Mark chapter 1. When he was at Peter's mother-in-law's house and everybody was crowding around, remember? He snuck out in the middle of the night to go pray. And the next morning, there's still a big crowd of people. A lot of sick folks. A lot of hurting people. Demon-possessed people. The disciples find him on top of the mountain and they're like, Jesus, everyone's looking for you. There's work to be done. You're out here praying, okay, yeah, prayer is great, you know, wonderful, hallelujah, but we got work to do. You know what Jesus said? We got to move on. We can't stay here. What do you mean we got to move on? There's a huge crowd of people. We've got to go. I can't stay here. There's other towns that need to hear this message. How could Jesus know that this incredible reception he had was not where he needed to be because he was in prayer to his Father. And he did this a lot. Luke 5.16 says that Jesus would often withdraw to desolate places and pray. Why desolate places? No one's going to follow him there. <laughs> he says, if I, if I try to pray in my own house, there's going to be people knocking at my door all the time. So we're going to go out to the desert and we're going to pray. He knew it was that important. We as a church are called as spiritual people to do spiritual work. So if we're not plugged into the source of spiritual power, it's not going to work. Don't let the devil unplug your life. 
Don't get upset about, well, there needs to be more prayer. How about in your life? Where's the prayer in your life? Are you in a constant conversation with Jesus Christ? It's like the one thing that Paul said to do without ceasing. Never stop praying. Are you serious, Paul? <laughs> Never stop praying? That's what he said. I could talk forever about prayer. I better keep going. But that's the fourth thing. Four tasks the church has. Teaching, fellowship, worship, and prayer. These are the four things a church is meant to do. Now, we know what they did. So let's see in verse 43 what happened as byproducts of what they did. It says, And awe came upon every soul, or fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Okay. So those first four things, those are great. I love practical. I love give me a list of things to do and I'll go do them. These two things are things that are very hard, you could even say impossible, to make happen. But you know what they are? They are things that you can reasonably expect to happen if you are doing the first four things. So these are two expectations. If we are pursuing the Lord faithfully, devoting ourselves to teaching, fellowship, worship, and prayer, the first thing we can expect is character. It says, awe came upon every soul. There was a transformation. There was an orientation of the heart towards God. As they did all those things, they devoted themselves to the teaching and the prayers. Their hearts were changed. That word for awe is phobos. That's where we get the word phobia from, right? The fear of God. It's what Proverbs 1.7 says is the beginning of knowledge, and it's what Proverbs 9.10 says is the beginning of wisdom. It's the starting point for Christian growth is the fear of God, the healthy respect and knowledge for who God is. If you have a fear of God, you're not going to let your own self and ego get in the way. And as they did these things, their hearts began to be oriented towards God. When we pursue the Lord and when we wait upon Him, He begins to act. And He begins to transform people. When people know that God is among them, it changes them. It's what's called the fruit of the Spirit, right? Now, you can't make fruit happen. Farmers don't go out there and take the vines and wring them until the grapes start popping out. It'd be foolish. I'm really like 90% sure that's not how the process works. Somebody could Google that if you want to double check for me. Fruit happens when the vine or the branch or the tree is plugged into the ground, when it's drawing up nutrients, when the rain is coming down, when it's just abiding in the vine, right? When you're doing the things you know you're supposed to do, your character will begin to change. The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22 says, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Do you need one of those things in your life? Anybody need a little more self-control? How about kindness? How much is kindness reflected in the comments that you've made on the videos you've watched this week? Kindness, goodness, faithfulness. And you ever sit there and you try to work one of those things up? You know, you're like, okay, this week we're going to be gentle. Not going to let nothing touch me. Not going to be angry. And then what happens? It's Monday morning. Stuff starts to happen. And then your boss calls you in and he does that thing again. Then you get home and the kids are doing that thing again. And you're trying and you're trying. And then around Wednesday, you blow up and you're not gentle anymore. When you just try to sit there and like, you know, like you're Aladdin rubbing the genie's lamp. Lord, please make me more gentle. That doesn't work. It doesn't work for me, I can tell you that. 
So then how am I going to get gentle? How am I going to get full of love and peace and patience? By abiding in Christ, by doing the things that you know you're supposed to do. Trusting that by doing the things you can control, the Lord's going to handle the rest of it. When you commit yourself to teaching and prayer and fellowship and worship, the Lord comes in and starts to change your heart. Isn't that cool? So ask yourself, is your life being transformed? Is your life reflective of the presence of God? If not, why not? So why can't do it? Well, we know you can't do it. So here's the question. Are, are you doing the things that you ought to be doing? I have, a, <laughs> I have a friend that I worked with at 1-800-GOT-JUNK who told me very conclusively he's tried every religion and they're all fake. He was, didn't say it quite like that, but that's what he said. I've tried every religion. I said, you didn't try every religion. He said, I've tried every religion and every denomination. Like, I don't think you have. But he said, you know what? I, I was, went to this church, and everybody was buying drugs from me, and everybody was sleeping around. And I was like, fine, I, this isn't doing anything for me. And then I told him, well, then you didn't try it. You didn't do what you were supposed to do. You were just living like you always live. You were just going to church on Sunday and saying, oh, I tried it. So if you say, well, I've been trying this religion thing. It's not doing anything for me. Well, are you just showing up? Or are you actually doing what the Lord has called you to do? Because it's in doing those things that the change begins to happen. And the second expectation we can have, which is equally out of our reach, is power. The power of the Holy Spirit. He says many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Again, something we cannot control. Never buy a book in the checkout line at Walmart that gives you 12 easy steps to seeing miracles every day in your life. Don't do it, all right? That's not Scripture, and Scripture makes it much more complicated, you could say. The mighty works that Jesus had done were being continued through the apostles. And as you go through the book of Acts, it wasn't just the apostles. It wasn't just the 12. You see Philip doing miracles. You see Paul and Barnabas doing miracles. You see Agabus prophesying. You see the four daughters of Philip prophesying. Stephen was doing signs and wonders. So it wasn't just restricted to the apostles. And we don't believe that God has stopped doing miracles today. We've seen miracles down in Calvary Chapel Trustville. You've seen miracles here in Calvary Chapel Lynchburg. The Lord told us these things would persist to the end. In Galatians 3 verse 5, Paul talking to the Galatians and trying to convince them not to abandon the gospel and go after circumcision, he says, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? He could appeal to what God was doing in their midst as evidence of the power of the gospel. And he said, Well, then why don't I see any miracles in my life? Well, hold on. First of all, I, the Lord has shown me this. I think we do see these things. If I could raise, ask somebody to raise your hand, I'm not going to do it, but just think about this. If I were to have you raise your hand and say, I have seen a healing or a miracle or an angelic work, you know what, let's do this, because this is such a big faith builder, I love it. If you in your life at any time have seen a miracle or a prophetic word spoken to you that came to pass or had a dream or a vision or any of those things, raise your hand if you've ever seen that happen in your life. Look around the room. Don't tell me miracles aren't happening anymore, but we are still seeing these things happen. But you know what happens? We get afraid to talk about them. Because, well, if I, what if I say it to somebody and they say, that's fake, that's not real? I hope you all saw that. I hope it builds your faith and gets you a little excited. 
Because what does the devil want us to do? Please don't tell anybody. If you tell somebody that God healed you, then they're going to think God can heal them, and then what's going to happen? Everybody's going to have all this faith in God. (laughs) The more you draw near to the Lord in prayer and in the word, and the more you're around faith-filled people, the more you're going to see the power of the Spirit at work in your life. And these things tend to happen more during times like this in the Bible, during revival or during seasons of harvest. That's true. The Lord has times where he's like, okay, we've been working faithfully, but today we're going to blitz. We're going to go for it. But that shouldn't be a cop-out for us refusing to pray prayers of faith or to step out and see what God could do. When we follow the Lord... And not when we have a 12-step plan. Okay, here's the six things you got to do if you want to see this healing or if you want to see this thing happen. It's drawing close to God. The more you draw close to him, the more you encounter him. And the more you encounter him, the more you can see his hand at work all around you. We can't control it, but we can do the things he's told us to do. Can't we? Jesus said in Luke eleven thirteen, you're evil and you know how to give good gifts to your kids. Did anybody give their kids a rattlesnake for Christmas this year? And if you did, I'm sure it was in a cage of some kind. Surprise, Jimmy. Merry Christmas. He's like, you don't do that. And you're evil. I'm God. I know how to give good gifts. And you know what he says? Your heavenly Father knows how to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. He said, just ask me. Just ask me. 1 Corinthians 14 says to pursue these things earnestly. If we do what they did, we can expect to get what they had. Number one, character. Number two, power. Those are the expectations that a church can have when they do the things that God has called them to do. It would do no good for me to stand up here and to berate you and say, be a better person. You're like, I'm trying. (laughs) Or to say, why haven't you healed 12 people this week? That'd be ridiculous. And you'd get mad at me, and rightfully so. Instead, what we can do is do the things that God has laid out for us faithfully and expect that God's going to do his part when we're faithful. Amen? Amen. Now, when we're doing the work the right way, when we're reaping the rewards of what God has said would happen, there's another element that we cannot miss. And the Lord rebuked the church of Ephesus in the book of Revelation for this. He says, you got all this great stuff going on, but I have this against you. You have left your first love. Your heart stinks. You've got everything right, but your heart stinks. Your attitude is off. And this is the third thing we're going to look at. Three attitudes that we see here. It's not just what you do that matters, and it's not even just the results that matter. How you do it matters. So let's read verses 44 through the first part of 47 here. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Pause it right there. Megan, can I have you bring my phone or your phone so I could see the clock? Hi, Micah. It's my boy. And that's my other boy. Hi, Colt. <laughs> And this is my sister. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. So I'm going to wrap through these quickly here. 
the attitudes of the church. Number one, you see this, it says, all who believed. All who believed. Everyone participates. The first attitude to look at is participation in the church. It's not the pastor's job to do the work. It's the pastor's job to equip you to do the work. We can't sit on the sidelines. Christianity is not a spectator sport. Amen? Second attitude we got to cultivate is love. The church was selling their stuff so that everybody could have what they needed. They sold their possessions. They sold their belongings. There's no element of coercion here. 2 Corinthians 9, 7 said that each person should give cheerfully, not under compulsion. The Lord loves extravagant demonstrations of love. If you're going to do all the right things, but you've got no love for people, the Bible says you're like a, you're like a clanging cymbal. It's just annoying. Number three, they had an attitude of faithfulness. They met in the temple every single day, and then they went home to each other's houses. Don't you love that? They were not only going to church every day, but then when church was over, they'd go home to each other's houses and continue what they were doing at the church. And some people want to say, well, the early church was house churches. Not really. They had 10,000 people here and more. They just couldn't get enough of being among God's people. They were not only devoting themselves to the teaching and to prayer and to all those things. They were doing them faithfully every day, morning, noon, and night. Hebrews chapter 10, right, says to do these things so much the more as we come to the end, not so much the less. Well, things are so hard now. Are we under Roman occupation? It's not quite that hard. And if, get, if it were to get that hard, then we really would need to ramp it up, wouldn't we? So those are those three attitudes. Participation, everybody gets involved. Love, we do it out of love for people. And faithfulness, we keep going. If we accomplish all those things, but our hearts are rotten. The Bible says it's just wood, hay, and stubble. It's all going to burn on that last day. And we're going to end with the end of verse 47 here. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. We've seen four tasks the church is to be engaged in. We've seen two expectations we can have if we do those tasks faithfully. And we've seen three attitudes we have to have as we do them. But there's only one goal. And the goal of the church is to save souls. To save souls. Everything we do is to be done for that end. Now we can say, oh, see, they lo everybody loved the church, so we've got to make sure the world loves the church. Well, not necessarily. What happens is the church was so faithful, it was attractive to people. They're like, what is it about those folks? We can't chase what the world wants and then say, well, if they love us, then they'll love Jesus. No, we've got to love Jesus and show them what it looks like to love Jesus. And that's attractive to people. So many weird ideas about what the church is, isn't it? So many weird ideas about what the church is for. But the good news is we don't have to wonder. The Lord has told us what the church is for and what the church is to look like. Our goal is salvation of souls. And if we work faithfully... God will do the work. We can stress about oh, how are we going to save all these people. The Lord has said, how about you just be faithful. You sow the seed. You water the seed. You fertilize the ground. And I'll give the increase. That takes a big burden off of my shoulders. Puts it right back on Jesus, whose shoulders are broad enough to bear that burden, aren't they? So let's just wrap it up with this here. Where do you need to shore up the foundations of your life? 
Are you neglecting one of those four tasks? Think about it. If you're taking notes, write it down. Which of those tasks have you neglected? Is it prayer? Is it the word, maybe? Have you been neglecting fellowship? How about this? Are you expecting God to change your heart? Are you expecting that the Lord will work in power in your life? How about this? You're doing all the right things, but is your attitude good? Are you doing it out of love? Are you doing it faithfully, or are you real protective of your life and your time? So if we can do all those things, God will accomplish the goal. And this is the last question I have for you. Do you have your eyes on the prize of seeing people come to salvation? Every other problem the world has, it's all up here. The foundational problem is that people are in their sins and they need to know that Jesus loves them and died on the cross for their sins. So you know all of this. None of this was new to you. You know these things, they're very basic, but like Peter said, it's not a burden for me to repeat them to you because we've got to be doing them. You guys are in a season of victory and you might be wondering, well, what's going to change? Well, it might change the way it looks a little bit, but the heart of it's not going to change. And I hope in your life too that you can keep your heart right where it needs to be, that the Lord will use your life. And I promise you that if you commit yourselves and devote yourselves to the things that the early church was doing, you're going to see the Lord start to work in your life, not only out there, but in here. He's going to change you too. Amen? Let me close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word, God, that transcends time and space and culture. And it's so simple, but it's so great. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here. You would help us all just to be simple Christians. We don't need to be the special boutique brand, Lord, that has some weird angle or some weird bent, Lord. It's just enough for us to know you and to be in love with you and to love your people and to work hard for your kingdom's sake. We give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.